You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a collection of the best urban legends, unexplained happenings, and mysterious sightings from both sides of the Atlantic. A podcast where we believe the only difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. I'm your host, Kean, and I'm broadcasting from the Wide Atlantic Weird Bunker, currently located somewhere in deepest, darkest Essex. This evening's offering, an interview with my own brother, Donal, in which we discuss the ideas behind the phrases post-truth, and the death of expertise. Why? Well, because during all of my research into strange beliefs, I've been struck again and again by the fact that there is an underlying connection between almost every fringe idea. It doesn't seem to matter if we're talking about conspiracy theories, alien abductions, hidden archaeology, or Bigfoot hunting. There are common traits that link believers in each of these phenomena, They are, for the most part, or have become over the years, profoundly and defiantly anti-science, anti-authority and anti-intellectual. We're now living in a world that's being profoundly shaped by this sort of thinking, and to me, there's a direct correlation between paranormal belief and the populist distrust of authority, so I think that's for sure worth investigating. Now, if the audio here isn't quite as good as usual, well, that's because it's a Skype interview. I think the conversation makes up for any audio shortcomings. And there aren't any short fiction segments on this episode either, just one big chunk of unadulterated post-truth. So stay tuned for all kinds of weirdness at home and abroad with Wide Atlantic Weird. Okay, hi Don. Welcome to the show. Um, you've been you've been to see Kiss recently, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I coughed up to uh, to watch Kiss, mime along with some backing tracks, and to generally, uh, I, I, you know what? They put in a decent shift for for what they're physically capable of. They're pretty old, and it's it's a bombastic uh, visual experience. And for me, having loved Kiss for most of my adult life, it was. I, I, no matter what they did, I was going to love it, <laughs> and I did. You didn't? Did you feel a bit like they were phoning it in, or like were they enjoying it themselves on any level? Um, very hard to tell because they are phoning it in in the sense that the show is very, um, it's very clearly put together to a formula, and a formula has been basically the same since the nineteen ninety six onward sort of reunion tour so they are phoning it in but they're phoning it in with energy if you know what i mean oh yeah Did, so i seem all, to rem- all, all the beats are entirely um predictable like if you've seen any of their shows and pay attention and can remember them from about 96 onwards this was exactly what a sort <laughs> of a, you know a, a well-heeled kiss fan would expect and so i i don't want to say that they're they're lazy in phoning it in because it's, it's a big show and it requires a lot of effort but I mean, they're not thinking. No. Let, let me put it that way. You know, I was listening to the Kiss episode we did a few years ago. I still, yeah. I'm, st- I'm dead proud of it. Like, I still think it's one of the best things <laughs> I've ever put together. It's really good. Just talk about having somebody on who's knowledgeable about their topic. Uh, reading out the biographies is, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, they're, they're so rewarding. You know, like 
because they're so patently false and so self-serving <laughs> that if you just like if you have any eye on the facts and just uh, and then you read the 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 books in relation to that knowledge and for any sort of sense of sardonic wit or appreciation for sardonic wit it just it produces its own gold i do feel that uh like rereading like reading the biographies for the cast was a pretty good podcast kind of a gimmick and then telling the story from the four different points of view except that as you mentioned several times on the episode you didn't actually need to reread them because <laughs> you knew everything anyway yeah sadly right uh, so we're not here to talk about kiss though we might again in the future um we uh, this this podcast is more about kind of fringe beliefs and and like kind of paranormal happenings and stuff like that. And in particular, I take an interest in the sort of mindset behind it and the the cultures and communities behind it. And uh, in this episode, we're going to be focusing on what some people call post truth and what we kind of like to call the the death of expertise. Uh, Donald, why? What is your background with that material and like your position, and why are you someone who might be able to speak knowledgeably about uh, these things? Well, my, my background is in political science. Um, I'm doing my PhD in political science now. I'm just finishing up writing my dissertation, hoping to graduate uh, this year. And I suppose my day job is as a college slash university professor if you want to be highfalutin about it or, or just teacher if you want to be a little bit more down to earth and one of the things that I've noticed in my classrooms over the past couple of years I've been teaching in one way shape or form reasonably regularly since 2013 and with increased sort of responsibility and regularity since 2016 the uh, winter of 2016 is that there's just an, a, a very 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 steep increase in pushback from a certain type of student in particular about the sort of the validity of the kind of claims that someone in a position such as mine which is to say a kind of a, a position of received authority I suppose or established knowledge a pushback against that as well where are you getting that information from and I've I've got other ideas based on sort of materials that I've perused online and this kind of stuff so what what I started to see is kind of a frontline increase in this sort of um, conspiratorial thinking or conspiratorial mindset at the same time as I suppose Western democracies more generally started to see an increase in support for populism and a cornerstone of populism, although it can be sort of nebulous and multifaceted and very hard to define in, in sort of coherent empirical terms. One clear and consistent cornerstone of populism is um, an anti-establishment sentiment that very quickly veers into anti-intellectualism. So I guess for my interest in this is as an educator um, and then downstream it's as a political scientist interesting or interested in the sort of maintenance of democracy and an interest in the kind of forces that can erode support for democracy and the sort of the, the, the health of a democracy and how um, anti-intellectual and um, as a result sort of anti-establishment and conspiratorial views are part of the cocktail that's sort of, I, I would say, starting to erode trust and endanger the health of democracies in, let's say, where I live in Canada, but uh, across the Western world more generally. Fantastic. Um, I, I see huge connections between all of those things. Uh, and I see for, for many people, the intro to this sort of thinking 
comes from the kind of areas that I, I'm interested in and, and that I like to research. And as you know yourself, um, when we were much younger, I always had books about uh, UFOs and monsters and kind of strange things like that. And, you know, I mean, I, I read those books with the with the kind of idea that, you know, these ideas were out there and, you know, that the people investigating them were on the whole genuine, you know, that like these phenomena, if whether or not they existed, were worthy of investigation and that the people doing so were doing it in a an open-minded and a genuine sort of a way. And, you know, I always thought that was interesting and I thought these people were obviously informed and interested and interesting individuals, you know, doing the right thing. If something out there seems bizarre and interesting, I think science should be the first one in line to go and check that out. And, you know, that was with the amount of information we had access to in those days, in the sort of pre-information revolution days. Whereas now those communities still exist, but there's so much negativity involved with them. And there's so much kind of heads in the sand type stuff going on, you know, where the evidence, we have access to so much more evidence now. And, you know, it, it generally does not support these odd views. And instead of taking that on board and, and changing their views, these people who believe in these unusual things tend to change the goalposts, you know, of what they believe or of what they'll accept. So unfortunately, I've seen something that, you know, has been quite positive to me, and which I do enjoy and which can be fun. I'm seeing it become very negative and very slipping into that conspiratorial mindset, which then leads to the, the populist mindset and the problems we have today. Yeah, I, I think that there's a couple of strands to it that like in terms of um, how it how this kind of thing manifests itself um, and and where it comes from and how it's sort of accelerated or ex ex accentuated in, and especially has become more of a problem. So like there's nothing wrong with having an open mind and there's nothing wrong with sort of trying to um, pursue nooks and crannies for obscure evidence and to try to, you know, test everything, right? There's, it's not like conspiracies don't exist and it's not like you know that there is, you know that there's there's very strong evidence for a, some type of ruling class but it's it's obviously that's a socioeconomic category for the most part it's not you know lizard people or whatever but there you know there is a degree of you know if you look at something like distribution of wealth right so wealth inequality or income inequality across the world and you look at the kind of uh, disparity and polarization on those kinds of issues like there there is a very it's a very much a world of haves and have nots and the haves do control a lot of the kinds of information and presentation of information you know and that there is a narrative that they want to peddle and, and whatnot and, and having an open mind to the possibility of sort of conspiracy in that regard isn't altogether bad it's 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 that sort of conspiratorial mindset in the sense of let's just make sure that we know what we know rather than just sort of blindly or dumbly receiving conventional wisdom without a, a critical eye or a second thought you know so that's not a problem what becomes a problem is when you sort of uh, encounter people whose commitment to the idea of there being a sort of a, a ruling class who wants to utilize its power to to wield um uh, sort of corruption in their favor and keep the truth from you know the sheep's eyes and, and all this kind of stuff when they when their commitment to that worldview becomes part of a deeply held partisan identity 
so much so that evidence cannot persuade them to the contrary. That's when we kind of get into trouble. Yeah. And all of this, I would say, has to be sort of understood in the context of some of the kind of innovations in thinking that, that really came from the sort of that 60s um, intellectual movement onwards, the likes of what, what sometimes is called um, uh, deconstructionist thinking or um, the kind of the Frankfurt School of critical deconstruction and this kind of stuff like continental philosophy. So a couple of key thinkers in this, sometimes they're allied to what postmodernism, sometimes they're not. You've got the likes of Herbert Marcuse and uh, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault. And in particular, one philosopher on this sort of point who had, who kind of coined one of the, the more widely adopted definitions of postmodernism is a guy called... Um, uh, Lyotard, I think his first name is Jean-Francois, if I remember correctly, but his last name is Lyotard, and he described or defined postmodernism as an incredulity toward meta-narratives. And so what he sort of said there is that, you know, like the big arcs of history, the, like the narrative arcs of history, especially ideas of progress and things like this, are presented by the powers that be as natural and a given, when in actual fact they're kind of manipulations of those in power and you know they're 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 you know building blocks of an artifice designed to make sure that people stay in their own places and so essentially it's it's again this idea that everywhere regular people are presented with certain ideas as natural and essential when in actual fact they're socially constructed and only true insofar as our actions give them meaning and so the kind of logical end point of this is i mean at worst, a nihilistic relativism, if nothing means anything and all symbols are merely constructions of, you know, illegitimate power utilized by those who have the means to do so in order to oppress those who don't, well, then anything can mean anything. Therefore, nothing means nothing or nothing. Uh, that's that's uh, nothing means nothing is a quote from the Macho Man Randy Savage, incidentally, as from the famous uh, and, and no, noted, noted philosopher, Macho Man Randy yeah. Savage. Yeah. Big, big into the postmodernists was old Randy. <laughs> but so this this sort of relativism uh, essentially sort of says, you know, art isn't what you think it is. Beauty isn't what you think it is. Power isn't what you think it is. You know, politics isn't what you think it is, so on and so forth. It's just those who have the position of privilege to manipulate how ideas are presented do so in their own interests. And everything is corrupt and self-serving in this kind of way. And so there, it, into that space comes this, well, if nothing means anything, anything can mean what I want it to mean. And that is where the very cynical conspiratorial minded people step in, especially in a kind of an information overload environment like we have today with the democratization of information that the Internet provides. And you have extremely cynical actors, not sort of pulsing through nooks and crannies to try and find out, hey, I wonder what it is that's really going on here. They're thinking into this space, I can present any idea. And if nothing means anything and anything can mean whatever I want it to be, nobody has any legitimate grounds to tell me that I'm wrong. And this is where we get into the post truth idea, because when Leotard says met, uh, incredulity towards meta narrative, one of the biggest and most profound meta narratives that he wants to deconstruct in that regard is the uh, enlightenment the, the idea, idea of, of truth, truth, the very idea of yeah. objective truth. Yeah. 
what they call capital T truth, right? So there's no such thing as capital T truth. There's only small t truths, uh, plural, and that each individual has their own singular sort of subjective truth and that nobody is in a position to deny the validity of that individual or individual's subjective truth. And so we're into this very, um, again, nihilistic, I would say, relativist space where we can all just invent our own truths and we don't have to be, you know, sort of, we don't have to play the same game and we don't have to agree to the same rules. Not only That's, that, but it's not only that we're disregarding traditional sources of, of truth, you know, like, like traditional authorities, but people who are authorities are actually, you know, we, we distrust them precisely because they are. They are disadvantaged because <clears throat> we see ourselves, like if we are the supposed truth speakers, we see them, we see ourselves as these, you know, anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian icons. We get power from, from that perceived underdog status. And the folks yeah. who are on top of the traditional heap of, of knowledge providers, whether that's a scientist or an academic of some kind or a political person in political power, they are they are to be distrusted precisely because of who they are and where they are. Yeah, it's, it's a peculiar subversion of um, the sort of the position um, that... Trasimachus, one of the characters at the start of Plato's Republic, outlines, uh, which is equally noxious, just in the exact opposite way as what you just described, which is, so at the start of Plato's Republic, Socrates asks a bunch of individuals what justice is, and Thrasymachus says that justice is when the strong dominate the weak, right? Strength is, is an inherent good, and therefore it's always good and, and just when the, the strong dominate the weak. The way that this worldview, again, that you just described is, is that the weak are always right, and, and, and being part of the establishment is seen as a kind of a, let's say, interthrasimiakin, I think, I probably got that wrong, terms, is, you know, to be strong, right? Because you have the force of the establishment behind you. So let's say a typical accreditation, right, as someone who could be considered a, a traditional expert has, has the weight of, of domination behind them. So when, you know, like... One of the things that, let's say, a postmodernist would do is would, would deconstruct the, the symbolic power that a lab coat affords a scientist. So yeah. when they speak, it has disproportionate weight relative to someone else. So they're not interested in the actual expertise that a scientist might have in the sense that they've done a lot of reading and understand this issue very well. It might have even conducted their own empirical research and, you know, and whatnot. Instead, it's, oh, the lab coat constructs a figure of power. All power is domination. All domination is top down, so therefore you're the strong dominating the weak. That's always wrong and it's always illegitimate. And so it's the it's the exact reverse of what Thrasymachus says when he says that justice is um, the 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 rule of the strong over the over the weak. It's, so you are you are you are always morally correct for standing up to the 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 upper power because you are the underdog. Basically, exactly. if you are fighting the evil empire, you are the rebels, and you are correct. Everybody wants to be their own rebels fighting against their own personal evil empire. Yeah, and, and, and part of this is because, and the, well, like, let's say one of the reasons why that's persuasive to a lot of people is that, you know, in, in, in an attempt to be, to let's say, to live up to some of the standards of, let's say, of morality that, that we have, you know, long had on paper in Western democracies, but, but you know, didn't actualize. And so take, for example, the, um, the uh, Declaration of Independence 
Thomas Jefferson writes, we, you know, we take these truths as self-evident that all men are created equal, except you guys, slaves, who are going to build the whole country. You yes. know, so like we've always had these standards that we haven't lived up to. And one of the things that we've tried to do, I would say, since post-war era in particular after the 60s, is to try and live up to some of those doctrines. And in doing so, we've had to kind of face down a lot of the the realities of where the Enlightenment happened and in what context it happened and some of the hypocrisies that come with that. But in deconstructing the Enlightenment project, we've deconstructed the idea of reason and, you know, and, and, and of reason as the sort of illuminating force that makes humanity, you know, different from beasts. If, if you, you know, if you were going to use the language of, of how the uh, Enlightenment philosophers would have understood themselves. Yeah. And so we end up with this position of, you know, my ideas are just as good as yours. Yeah. Even if you have this 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 weight of, of science or let's say reason behind you, because well, reason was, you know, invented by the likes of Thomas Jefferson who was raping slaves and and that's true, he did do that, you know. But it's it's a real baby with the bathwater issue. But what I see increasingly now is it's not just you are wrong despite you being in this kind of powerful position. You're you're wrong precisely because you're in that position. The 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 distrust of authority itself, I think, is what's key here. Exactly, because you live in the house that Thomas and Jefferson or Thomas <laughs> Jefferson built. Yeah. You yeah. know? And and so therefore, as long as you're living there, like each brick brick is corrupt and you're corrupted by those bricks. So when you use the language of reason that's tainted by, you know, the, the scars of history. Yeah. Well, as you said at the top, I mean, a certain healthy scepticism towards the systems already in place is absolutely necessary and key. And it's the only way things are going to get better. And, you know, I mean, power is power and money is money. And uh, yes, a tremendous amount of uh, what we're told and how things are presented to us is at the whim of the folks who are on top. And that is absolutely true. And I think anyone ought to be a little bit sceptical about, about that whole setup. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like if you look at the, let's say, just as an example, like the 2016 election, right? It was very bad for democracy and global cohesion, everything else that Trump won. That doesn't mean that Hillary Clinton was clean, you know? No. The, 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 the swipes that were taken against her, the criticisms of her, you know, were for the most part valid, like in the ones that were, you know, substantiated. They, they were she was a bad candidate and she does represent a lot of the corruption of money in politics and dynastic families and yeah. you know hereditary influence and all that kind of stuff you know it's like we can we can criticize the infrastructure while still acknowledging that it's better than the alternatives but then we we pick and choose the things that we like and we don't like so in order to cast ourselves as let's say you're somebody who you know, Hillary Clinton represented all of those bad things to you. She represented the the old order, the the old moneyed families, and the old blue blood inherited wealth and inherited power. Then you have, to, in order to see Trump as the opposite of that, and see him as this kind of, you know, breakout character speaker for the people, you have to overlook the fact that he is a man of inherited wealth who, you know, is from the higher echelons of the money elite from New York. You have to overlook those things, and yet, you know, the people who felt truly and strongly as they did and I don't think that any of that was disingenuous they are still you have to pick and choose the bits that suit your narrative and you have to drop the bits that don't in order to make yourself the rebel and the other person 
the Empire. And forgive me for simplifying it into a dumb Star Wars thing, but I, I see that, I think that kind of Western storytelling is incredibly important here because I see the same thing with, you know, Alex Jones sees himself as this freedom fighter up against, you know, an evil corrupt media. Trump sees himself as a an embattled guy who's up against this established deep state. It's the same thing with Von Daniken going up against the... You know, any kind of odd belief or fringe belief, the, the main character sees himself as his hero and pits, has to pit himself against some more powerful enemy who is, who, who is establishment. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's um, for supporters, uh, it's about the kind of emotional story that they see themselves embedded in um, rather than a rational assessment of kind of, for want of a better term, like material conditions. So like your, your, your Trump voter is not so much looking at policies per se. They're not interested in the kind of statistics that might, or, you know, empirical facts or whatever that might prove one thing or the other. They see themselves typically as, you know, emotionally embedded actors in, in sort of broad narratives. And a lot of it is that I, I paid my dues and other people are, you know, being put ahead of me in the queue to, to receive the goods in life. And so when someone says, like, it's not your fault, the system is rigged, the establishment, like the game is set up against you. When Trump says that, it doesn't matter that, yeah, he's obviously a blue blood from inherited wealth. He's saying that the political game and it's the politicians who are manipulating you. And whereas I've been able to get ahead in the more pure competitive world of business, which, of course, is not true at all. But it fits the narrative that somebody might be willing to to go with on, on his behalf yeah it's, it's emotionally satisfying um to 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 the way in which they perceive themselves um in their own sort of narrative and story you know and that's that's tends to be a very strong motivating factor for people getting on board with this kind of stuff you know to choose another example i know we both watched uh, behind the curve recently which is the youtube or the netflix uh, documentary about the flat earth and I recommend it personally, if anyone's listening. I think you would as well. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it. But there were some of those issues were addressed in a very, and again, I, you know, always take, always apply a bit of skepticism with these documentaries, especially because they obviously are crafting their own version of the story too. But there are some themes in there that are just so on the nose and so important as to what's going on now, where the, the main person who it focuses on is this fellow Mark Sargent, who's some sort of leading name in the flat earth movement. And, he he couldn't care by by the by the looks of him he couldn't care less about the science behind it he just has found an idea that places him at the center of a movement he's got like he seems like this kind of schlubby nebbish guy doesn't he living in his mother's house and finally he's found this one thing that makes people like him and he travels around the world with it and he's really popular and they all are happy to see him and he wears his own bloody name on his t-shirt and he doesn't seem like a bad guy to be honest he's just found something that works for him and he couldn't care less if it's true or not. That's completely incidental. He's being satisfied emotionally by the narrative he's creating for himself, in which he is the hero, and he's up against big evil science, which is, of course, as usual, a big conspiracy where everybody's in on it. And it's it's the yeah, same he, thing over and over again, isn't it? He comes across as someone who, you know, if he had been a fan of My Little Pony and didn't know that there were other people out there who also enjoyed My Little Pony, and then he found the My Little Pony community online 
And then he became particularly good at making My Little Pony videos. And then there were My Little Pony conventions that he would go to and people would really like pat him on the back and say, good job, that was a it great It could have video. been anything. The fact that it was Flat Earth seems entirely incidental. Yeah. And he, it's, he even it's, says, you know, doesn't he? He even says that he like he went flipping through books of conspiracy theories to find one that hadn't been overdone. And he deliberately yeah. picked it because it seemed like the, the stupidest one out of them all. And he said, no one's doing this right now. This is my niche. Yeah, and it's very much like very deliberate. This, but it's like it's a story of social disconnection, um, and then the kind of interesting or bizarre connectivity that you know online cultures can provide, and and sort of a degree of fame coming out of that, and then I think very importantly, um, a deeply established partisan identity that comes with the positive reinforcement and recognition that that his sort of membership of this community brings you know I, mean, I really think that that's key because at some point when you start to identify as a member of a community and, and especially a member of a community in opposition to some other type of body whether it's a community or whether it's the establishment or whatnot there's there's a high social cost then to rescinding those beliefs and so you know Part of it is that it's more fulfilling and you get deeper community ties by feeling as though, you know, our backs up are up against the wall together, you know? Yeah. But but beyond that, it's like if Mark Sargent was to realize that, in fact, the earth is, is a globe and everything he's been saying is wrong, like there's a high social penalty for him to do that. So he's, he's, he says as much himself, actually, in some interviews. You know, he's asked, well, what would happen if something... I mean, I mean, a traditional scientific thing to say would be with these unusual ideas, well, what would disprove it? And if, if there's nothing, then you do not have a legitimate theory because if it's not open to being disproved, then it's, it is an emotional, it's an emotional thing, yeah. not, not a scientific one. It's an emotional idea, not yeah, a scientific like, idea. Empirical falsifiability is, uh, is a character, like it's a requirement. A requirement, of, yeah. Uh, a valid hypothesis. If, if, if your hypothesis cannot be... Um, empirically falsified it's just you know it, it, it's it's it might be a belief it might be a value it might be a sentiment it might be a feeling and it might not be wrong but it, can, it can't enter into the scientific conversation and i think one of the things that makes that documentary kind of fascinating is is it is definitely him as a character he seems he's not a bad guy you know he comes across as quite likable and, and there's something very genuine about him in that he several times kind of shoots himself in the foot just because he's so truthful and um, genuine. And, you know, he, he says exactly what we're saying, doesn't he? He says that he wanted to find an idea that could take off and be his own niche. He says that nothing could convince him that this wasn't true anymore because it's not about the science, it's about him and his community. He says all that, and he knows it in some part of his brain, but he, there's, a, you know, there's that self-created disconnect between knowing that and acting on it. So... It's, it's you know he's fascinating, and he's uh, you see him uh, hanging out quite a bit with someone that he seems to co-host a podcast with. I can't remember this this uh, female podcaster. She lives in Houston, Texas. Do you remember her name by any chance? Steer. Um, do you remember? She says that they Pat Patricia she, is it Patricia something because CIA is in her last name, and when some of the conspiracy theorists turn against her they decide that she must be a shill for the CIA because her last the last letters of her name are CIA, which is exactly how conspiracy thinking works. Yeah, well, and what's really funny about that is that she acknowledges 
like that the, the you know when she said some things that were sort of um heterodox to the you know the the community's positions on certain aspects of the the thinking that she was then called out as like an agent of the deep state and she works for the CIA and all this kind of stuff but she like while saying this she admits that she's utilized this tactic to other people who's criticized her yeah <laughs> and she, that yeah. she wants she basically almost says like that's that's the argument that she wants to make in response to the people calling her yeah. members of the CIA but she's like you know because you're wrong, you have to be manipulated by CIA. And she's like, no, because I'm right, you're a member of the CIA. But she, she puts her finger on it precisely and very eloquently. She very eloquently explains how conspiracy thinking works and why it's wrong and why you can't ever take it down or argue with it because it's not logical. And then in the same breath, you know, uses that exact thinking to say, well, I'm right, though. Yeah, it's like she stands right in front of this monolith of truth and then just sort of like drifts back into the bushes like that Homer Simpson meme. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, uh, uh, you know, in Occam's Razor. If, have you ever read any of the original text associated with it? So, like the actual William, William of Ockham. William of Ockham, yeah. So William of Ockham made his famous statement that, you know, you can, you can test truth in these various ways and then immediately followed up by saying, of course... Um, you know, anything the Pope says or the Church does is immune from this sort of logic. Yeah. And it's like, right, you came right... I, I understand, look, we're not... There's no point in judging him in his time and place by our ways of thinking, but, like, he walked right up to the to the Valley of Truth and looked up, put his head over and said, nope, I'm going to step back. You know. Dar- Darwin did a bunch of fudges like that as well, didn't he? In Darwin, Darwin was deeply aware of the implications on on his own society of what he was doing. So he, when he wrote On the Origin of the Species, um, he didn't say anything really about human evolution. Quite deliberately. He was uncomfortable with the social implications of it. He didn't say anything in the book to either go for it nor against it. He also privately felt that there wasn't enough evidence at that time because they just didn't have the fossil record. We do now, but at the time he, you know, he was being, he was applying scientific caution for sure, but he was also deeply aware of how this would affect his own society. So he was... Yeah. Yeah, he didn't go there for for quite complex reasons, I think. Yeah. I don't... So I, I think one, one of the things, like like I said, in order to understand how all of this stuff uh, spreads is one, that you have this, you know, there's the, 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 the relativism that comes with a postmodern worldview. So I think for a long time, that was the kind of very exclusive domain of eggheads, in on college campuses in particular lefty types um initially in philosophy departments then out to like art aesthetics and you know even in got into my sort of domain of political science and stuff like that but it was very like it was outside of mainstream thought or whatever and i think with the internet a lot of those ideas spread and in particular they sort of very much were um tacked on to sort of leftist political causes like feminism and, you know, critical race theory, these sorts of ideas. And I think part of the, the what, what would sort of morph into the alt-right started to see these tactics as good weapons for their causes. And so this idea of, you know, infinite relativism, meaning that I can never be wrong, has really gone down a very dark road in recent times because that's the kind of logic that Richard Spencer, who's one of the sort of quote-unquote self-appointed 
intellectual heads of the alt-right. He's very much in that sort of mentality and worldview. And a lot of the conspiracy theorists online skew hard, hard, hard right um, into the white supremacist and, and, and highly bigoted sort of, sort of world um, of, of, of noxious, noxious, you know, borderline fascist stuff. And they're using the sort of the very bizarrely and in what I think anyone who like a conservative who had a spine would see as a betrayal of kind of traditional values. Right. I mean, yeah, there's absolutely. nothing, there's nothing more um, counter to postmodernism's idea that nothing means nothing. Than than traditional tradition. conservatism. <laughs> yeah. Tradition, which is supposed to be the fun, like traditional communitarian values are like cornerstone of conservatism. And so, I think that when we think about um, the death of expertise and how that is feeding conspiratorial mindsets, a lot of it is being driven by these ultra cynical far right thinkers online who want to spread conspiracies, not because they believe them in a lot of cases, but because it's a it's a way for them to manipulate power in their favor and to mobilize, you know, a lot of anchorless or uh, unmoored individuals, a lot of whom happen to be uh, young white men, unfortunately. And that's certainly who I see in my classrooms coming up to me with the 9-11 was an inside job. And then four sentences later, we're talking about the elders of Zion kind of stuff. You know, and it is tied to actually, at its root, I think, a lot of it is the, the old-fashioned 1800s anti-Semitic globalist conspiracies. Like what's really weird is that we're in this very new space in terms of some of the presentation of these ideas and the, how the medium is carrying these ideas. But a lot of it is the, the old, old, old fashioned far right loony to, yeah. you know, well, I mean, you'll be aware that the term that's often, I mean, if you go back and watch those, you know, those videos of them, um, uh, what's the name of the Welsh guy? John John Ronson videos. His conspiracy yep. show from the year two thousand is very enlightening, but it's it's also very nineties, and it's a very nineties take on conspiracy culture, as I've said before. Um, it everyone is hung up on the NWO. You know that's what they call it. Nowadays, a lot of the same thinking is still happening, but the the boogeyman is now called the globalists. This is what Alex Jones would call them. You know, a more modern take on on the same phenomena. And I think that word is, is very deliberate. And it, it does... The problem is it does allude to real... Things that I think are real and things that I think are problems and things that I think we should be talking about. And yet, it's really hard not to see the anti-Semitic ties in there. It's all the same old idea that somewhere there's a secret cabal of evil bearded guys, you know, meeting in a bloody Prague cemetery, as happens in the, the, the original Protocols of Zion, and, you know, scheming everything. And... Do, do do the people who buy this, do they know that, they, do they all know that it has this origin? I mean, some of them do. So to some people, it's deliberate on it. There is obviously connections to like white supremacy and anti-Semitism, like in places where it's overt. But there's there, I think there's a much larger group of people to whom they have this sort of vague uh, presentiment that things are not right and that they've somehow been wronged. And that all these changes in, in, you know, in the economy and stuff, which are difficult to explain in real life, that they can all be expressed in, you know, almost by a metaphor. So, you know, if you're talking about lizard people or you're talking about globalists, 
is it almost like a metaphor for what's really going on because it's a bit simpler and a bit dumber and it can be communicated more simply? Well, you know, I think anytime you hear someone talk about globe, the, the globalists or whatever, I think people might be using that ignorantly, but to a significant minority, a lot of whom are kind of involved in pushing these ideas, that's a deliberate dog whistle for anti-Semitic ideas. So I like, and that's not to say again that let's say the kind of privileged socioeconomic elite who push a neoliberal agenda don't benefit disproportionately from the kind of inequalities that globalization creates. Yes. But again, all of that can be pointed to or, or can be sustained with evidence and, and whatnot, substantiated with evidence. Whereas the idea of, yeah, the the evil bearded folk in the Prague Cemetery, not so much. I think like... What, uh, one one um, book that I that I think is is very good for understanding some of the forces that create an environment wherein this this kind of thought can grow is a is a book called The People versus Democracy: Why Our Freedom Is in Danger and How to Save It. It's got a little bit of a, a gimmicky title, but it, it's by um, a Harvard scholar called Yasha Monk. He's a political scientist. And one of the things that he sort of points out is that um, a lot of the populist critiques of you know the lack of agency that everyday people feel in their lives are kind of valid that you know yeah. a lot of politics has disappeared into this technocratic space that we don't see that we don't feel and that you know our our sense of agency over our own lives has yeah. disappeared and that there does seem to be a kind of a um an agenda for you know economic and technocratic um, from economic and technocratic forces that, that does feel counter to the more local concerns of, of kind of normal everyday people. And so that what that does is that erodes trust yes. in, in government, it erodes trust in democracy. And part, again, part of what our school systems have been doing for the past 50 years is kind of deconstructing the Enlightenment and, you know, some of the historical contexts that produce the Enlightenment. And with that, unfortunately, you kind of end up again throwing out a lot of the civic values that, you know, democracy doesn't particularly function well without, you know, like commitment to individual rights, ideas of equality, you know, this kind of stuff. And again, as part of that, historical memory starts to kind of evaporate too, so that, you know, America presented itself through all possible facets of media for so long as you know the the, the defender of democracy um versus you know the scourge of nazism or whatever and you know people lived in a, in a kind of a sufficiently monolithic culture where you couldn't possibly grow up thinking that the nazis were and, and nazism and fascism was a, a kind of a, a an item on in the buffet of political ideologies that you could reasonably wasn't an adopt. option but people don't really get that message anymore. And, you know, maybe monoculture, monocultural values are, are not entirely good or whatever. But like when you have the infinite relativism of entirely curated echo chamber media environments that we have now, well, there's there's no sort of underlying agreed upon set of values regarding things such as liberty and equality that can say Nazism and fascism are never OK, never bad. And so people are hanging out on 4chan. And seeing yeah. people presenting Nazism and fascism and other such, you know, authoritarian sort of inclinations, and they, and they and they don't have that underpinning in the basic civic values 
like necessary for democracy to think of this as inherently and necessarily bad. And then at the same time, when they look at their own lives and the kind of influence that government actors have over them or that they could have over their sort of representatives in government, they kind of think to themselves, well, this seems like a shallow crock. Yeah. In, you know, well, and I don't, I don't know where this power is and I don't know where it goes and I don't understand how it operates. And yeah. insofar as I see individuals, you know, taking part in this, they seem to be dripping in corruption being, you know, bought and sold by corporations left, right and center. And so what Yasha Monk in this book represents is, or sorry, um, recommends, is essentially like we need to instill and police, basically, the, the values of good governance, right? Like we need to actually crack down on the kind of rotten corruption that is there. You know, like the thing is, when Trump says drain the swamp, he's not in exactly wrong. There was a swamp. There is a swamp, of course. He, we Like anyone who knew what the hell was likely to happen never thought that he was going to clean up that swamp he was going to get in, get in there <laughs> he was going to drink that sweet swamp water himself yeah he was going to be splashing around with the, with the toads <laughs> you know but like the the governmental process does need to be cleaned up and people do need to feel as though they have more of a say yeah. uh, but the, but the other problem is that a lot of the kind of things that we're dealing with um, in terms of challenges in liberal democracies do require huge, huge, huge amounts of highly, highly, highly specific and technical know-how and also like multilateral global cooperation. So if you take something like climate change, that's not a local issue and that's not something that your local representative or even your national elected representative can deal with, right? It's kind That's kind of something for the deep state for the most part. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. And so we, we need to like clean up our act so that the parts of the government that can be transparent and, um, you know, sort of cleaned out of corruption and, and can be responsive to real citizens' needs so that the, we can reinforce civic values through education. And then people can actually see and interact with those civic values in their daily lives. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that there will be a section of governmental power that just has to be ceded to a, you know, a probably invisible technocratic bureaucratic elite because, I mean, the fate of the planet <laughs> is too important for that to be something that we allow, you know, Billy Bob from Texas to have an opinion on. Well, we already live in an, an incredibly specialized society. Like, we don't have a problem with the fact that an electrician is a guy who's a specialty of being an electrician, you know? Why do we have a suspicion of, well, this guy is a climate scientist, but I know better than him because I... I, re I look at YouTube videos like no one's going to tell their electrician they know better than him. I'm going to fix my own fuses if you can't actually do it. Yeah, we already live in that guess, society. We choose. This is what annoys me is like you already apply the scientific process in almost every aspect of your life. You know, yeah, you, you, this, that is how we interpret the world in general. OK, we're not great at it because we're human. But in, in theory, at least we look at things around us and we try and make the simplest interpretation of what of what is there. And we use Occam's razor. We don't presuppose more happenings than, you know, are required by log by basic logic. And we do that for almost every aspect of our lives, except for the ones that don't suit us politically. So, you know, I'll accept that way of thinking for almost everything, but not for the age of the earth or not for who built the pyramids or, you know, the, the various fringe beliefs that are out there. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not sure it's, if you're going to think of Occam's razor, I'm not sure it's anything more um, 
complicated than the kind of mental titillation that thinking that, you know, the government is hiding aliens from us provides that my electrician doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> doesn't. It's just more you know interesting. I mean? Yeah, it's just like, it's just stimulates, you know, uh, your, your synapses to fire in a more pleasurable way. Here, here's that's... a question. So if I if I more or less think that, you know, the, the biggest powers in the world at the moment are probably private industry, and, like, I think that we're on track, if we're not there already, to international companies probably having more sway than most governments, um, in many things anyway, and that, you know, we're living in a, in a time when um, precariousness is becoming far more common, and I... I do I think that's deliberate? Well, I do in as much as I think companies and increasingly bigger merged companies have decided that's the best way for them to make more money. It's cheaper. So this precariousness and this lack of security, which is having all these other problematic knock-on effects on, on culture and and, and on, on social lives, like that's all happening, I think, because of basically money reasons. That's what I think is probably going on behind it. Um. I mean, is that deliberate? It is in as much as it's deliberate, a deliberate attempt by companies to get bigger and make more money. Am I that different to a conspiracy theorist? Like, what's the difference between me thinking that and someone just going one step further and saying, oh, there's a, a secret room somewhere where all these guys meet and make decisions? I mean, I mean, I, I, I reckon that a lot of these, you know, company heads and bankers, and they, all, they do know each other and they are in the same connected, extended networks and they do you know deals with each other is that is am i any different really i i mean i would hope so in the sense that what you just that like set out there is you know let's say uh, that's uh an argument right it's an argument in response to you know let's say who controls i don't know let's say who has a dominant influence over economic relations yes. in global politics, yes. right? So that's you, you just constructed a theory as to who is the most dominant player. Yes. So we could establish a bunch of hypotheses to test that argument. Uh, and they would be falsifiable yes. in the sense that there may or may not be an international cabal of big money elites who do in fact lobby and pressure government and disproportionately pressure government and get government to do things perhaps that maybe you know those actors themselves have individual commitments against, but because of their persuasions or persuasion one way or the other they go along with it and it could be true it could be false and so long as you conduct you know a reasonable inquiry that's methodologically sound to find out what the answer to those hypotheses are what the evidence suggests in, in response to them and if you're persuaded by the evidence you okay. have to be open to the idea that that's not the case yeah, I think there's lots of lots of evidence to suggest that those hypotheses would be satisfied, you know, by the evidence. <laughs> but it's but it's not the only I game in town, I is it? I, I mean, I'm I might be hung up personally on some of those issues, but then someone else might know another side of the coin and say, "Well, you're leaving out the effect of of religion or or you know other kinds of ideas, idea based things, rather than just economics based things." For yeah, example, for example, you know, economics are a type of ideas, of course, but like. In, in, in what I mean, I guess, ultimately is you've got, I think you've got good grounds to propose that as a theory to be tested. And it could be right, it could be wrong. And if it turns out to be wrong, and, and it, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's not these um, corporate interests that dictate the dominant sort of mold of economic relations, it's something else. Well, then, you know, as long as you're open to be persuaded, 
You can't be I, like uh, the flat earthers. What, what the evidence suggests that you're not the same as a conspiracy, you know, a conspiratorially minded person. That's the key because it's like you, if you're not actually wedded to the idea of a global elite that's out to get you and screw you over at all turns, and that you're you don't have a partisan identity that's deeply connected to that emotional story, well, then if it turns out to be false. You've, you've got no skin in the game. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah. yeah. Whereas if your whole identity is that you go around the world presenting con to conferences that Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing, and then if it turns out that that's not true <laughs> and you lose all your social cachet, well, then, you know, you're going to argue the Stanley Kubrick moon landing theory forever. And you can, yeah. like, that's cognitive dissonance. So right? unfalsifiability really is the, is the key difference here, isn't it? It's where it's one of them. Yeah, like again, conspiracies are real. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's 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 not you know like let's say for example if you look at um, U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War, almost every example of regime change that happened <laughs> in, in the in the developing world yeah. did have some element of U.S. you know kind of CIA uh, puppeteering, meddling, whatever else, you know. Yeah. But you'll if you watch like the kind of the, the it's a the documentary show called well, inverted commas documentary show <laughs> Oliver Stone's Secret History of the U.S. Oh really? It, it, Oliver Stone. Yeah, it, it takes some of that information and but it's it can't accept a forty percent confirmation. Everything has to be a hundred percent, right? So he's and obviously he's got his own political agenda, which is very much you know anyone who's anti-U.S. is inherently good. So he was pro-Chavez and yeah. a, bunch, a bunch of the other kind of radical populists in Latin America. Um, but you know his thing is that like if this since my emotional narrative is that the U.S. is a net force for evil in the world and anywhere time and place that it ever had any involvement, it was always wrong. Well. You know, I'm not inter He's not interested then in actual empirical uh, findings vis-a-vis -vis his his uh, inquiries or his hypotheses. It's he knows the answer in advance. Like that's part of the conspiratorial mindset. It's, it's like that's an ideological mindset. So like, and that that skews good and bad in the sense that we could agree that in general a feminist perspective is helpful towards a more equal society where you know full citizenship is is offered to both men and women and, and other marginalized communities. But, you know, if you ask a feminist regard, like what's, who's to blame here in any situation, the answer is the patriarchy. You know, it's like, that's ideologically motivated thinking. It's, and, and science is supposed to be, you know, insulated from that. It's different. It's a different type of thinking. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Well, but, okay, here's a question. So, um, a lot of the stuff that I liked reading about when I was younger that would be a bit out there and would be kind of fringe thinking, I feel as though in some cases the the tone of it has changed over the years. So let's say in the in the sixties and the early seventies you have an explosion of interest in like cryptozoology and these like supposed mysterious animals, for example. And the people out looking for them are like they're, uh, some of them are genuine scientists, but a lot of them are just kind of enthusiasts. Really, they're only a few steps removed from the people on those terrible ghost hunting shows. You know, they just they're looking for an adventure and they want to put themselves as the as the star of the show. But by and large, the material surrounding this stuff is generally pretty inoffensive, right? These people believe something odd. They go out looking for it. 
and they write books about it. And the books are not very negative. They're not taking pot shots at anybody. It's not about, um, you know, having a go at somebody or trying to take down somebody's career because they think differently to you. They're just kind of indulging in what seems like a kind of a silly hobby. And especially with the nature of some of those supposed mysterious animals, we're talking about, like, in theory, at least, a kind of a flesh and blood potential zoological oddity, right? Which may or may not exist. And if someone believes it doesn't, or if somebody believes it does when it doesn't, well, what's the harm? And I find even those communities are changing now and this this kind of suspicious and conspiratorial element is, is creeping into them in ways that are very negative. And perhaps you've... I don't know. Do you do you like the the Chris Jericho podcast? For an example, the Chris Jericho podcast. Yeah, I don't. I'll, I'll tell you that I listen to him when he talks to wrestlers and musicians. That's I don't it. listen to him when he talks paranormal. Well, I'm I'm the opposite then because I'm I'm fascinated by how all this stuff has come back and it's popular again, but it it's popular in a way that I find uncomfortable. He um, everyone he talks to is convinced, like, even if they're talking about, like, Bigfoot or some sort of, you know, mythical animal, into the mix has now come this conspiratorial angle where, guess what, the CIA are hiding it and the, you know, US parks system are are, are involved. And it's the same if if you're a moon landing fake hoax person, you think that NASA are, like, the absolute devil. And this, you know, these areas that used to be kind of a bit silly and kind of fun are now developing this conspiratorial angle. Like, what, what? why is that? What's changed? Well, I think it's, again, it's because distrust of government is, is very high. Um, and, you know, people see government bodies as inherently corrupt. And, you know, especially non-elected government bodies, right? So, like, this idea of the deep state... So like things like CIA and FBI and, and, and NASA and all that are seen as inherently corrupted in that way. Some of One these of the things, things have nothing to do... You know, they don't they don't beg for a government conspiracy angle to the folklore, and yet they all eventually, if they if they last long enough, they all develop one, you know? And there's, cur- there's currency in it, I think. Yeah. Again, because it's, it's titillating. And, yeah. Um, and it's... It, I think there is something to be said for the feeling of, um, you know, like... There's one thing for community identity, it's, but it's, it seems to be the case that partisan community identity, us against them, is just like irresistible. Yeah, it's you know? dynamite, isn't it? And uh, I mean, they've done sort of social, social psychological studies that, you know, they, they show people footage of um, two people um, experiencing some sort of pain or trauma. And um, the subject will be a member of a, a shared community with one of the people that they will see. Uh, experiencing trauma or pain and not a member of the same community as the other and there'll be involuntary hand movements in response to sort of seeing a perceived community member suffer that they don't have um, when the the non-community member receives this and there's like an infamous social psychological experiment called the robber's cave experiment where they put a bunch of 11 and 12 year olds out in a camp in like 1954 and gave them like a couple of days. Oh, that's right. And then they're socialize amongst each other. And before yeah. too long, even their ability to judge um, competitions fairly was negatively affected by again, like just a few days of sort of this this uh, partisan affiliation. So I think that sort of idea of us against them is is it's, 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 money, it's, it's money in the bank. Yeah, and it's innate. Yeah. seems right which is key so it's available to everyone so you know if you want to spread your bigfoot story 
you'll get some people on board, but you'll get those people on board much more deeply and they'll hold those feelings much more profoundly if it's, you know, there's people out there trying to come for your Bigfoot beliefs. Yeah. Oh, we need to guard these very specially. Yeah. And and again, I mean, you're, you're looking at a few, some ideas that when they first appeared, like let's, I mean, a lot of this stuff that I like is mythology that really came about in the in the mid 20th century. Um, and when, when it first came on the scene, you know, it was investigated by scientists, some of them anyway, you know, because, you know, there's nothing impossible on the face of it in there being a new unknown animal about, you know, that's worth investigating. And as the years went by and the evidence didn't come in, the people who were true believers did not change their beliefs. Instead, they needed to come up with a reason why the evidence wasn't coming in. Yeah, well, I mean... So that has uh, that, 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 that presupposes a conspiracy, doesn't it? If you think that people are lying about lack of evidence, then that there has to be a conspiracy. One of the key indicators of cognitive dissonance is like and cognitive dissonance is basically like you hold a belief that is disconfirmed publicly and yes. you, you know this these this sort of like your belief in black and your sort of empirical acknowledgement of white cause you this sort of this this dissonance or this this problem for you so you need to resolve this somehow one of the main indicators of that is when the lack of evidence for your belief is converted into evidence for your belief yes so it's the you know the fact that there's no evidence of there being a bigfoot proves that there is a bigfoot yes and that's <laughs> essentially like once once you have someone saying that like they're they're really digging a deep hole down into the rabbits that's that's two plus two is five territory, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, because it's uh, it's a it's like cognitive dissonance is a, is essentially a form of trauma, and so it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like and and people will say this, and not not to to equate these directly, but there's there's a similar sort of psychological process at play where, in order to rationalize something very bad happening to someone in their life they'll say i'm glad that this very bad thing happened to me because without it i wouldn't be where i am today you know it's the same kind of logic of of, of seeking to cope with something that's kind of irreconcilable something like something that might be just like patently bad and there's there's kind of no way to present it but you know you would be where you are today no matter what happened to you you couldn't be anywhere else you know that's in, if you look at the history of of i'm, I'm thinking more like cult leaders and stuff like that the amount, uh, who, you know, some people who believe, who came to believe something incredible. The amount of them who had some sort of mental breakdown and then they came out of it saying, oh, well, actually, I learned some truth and came out stronger. And that's when they have their breakthrough. That's when they realize that God is talking to them tr through their neighbor's dog or the earth is 4,000 years old and they all, you all have to go and live with them in a commune in Utah, you know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's, a, it's a way to kind of rationalize something that they're probably deeply unhappy or uncomfortable about. And to turn probably like a, a categorical negative into some form of positive. And, you know, I don't I don't want to be demeaning to people who do that because it's it's virtually irresistible. Well, again, do I you don't know, like everything you ever hoped for that didn't come true, you know, led to something else that you might be happy about. And, you know, the most straightforward way to narrativize that is to say, well, it's good I didn't get that job because I ended up getting this job, which is which is better, you know. But and that, you might that also does happen. Have just been sad that you didn't get that job. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I I want to emphasize that I, I would never like to look down on somebody because they have an odd belief. And I do like we said it right at the top. Like if something is genuine, then it's worth looking into. 
and I would never give someone a hard time because they were interested in something unusual or they, they genuinely wanted to investigate it. One problem I have is when I do argue with people who believe odd things and I, I think differently, um, I'm thinking specifically about kind of like fringe archaeology stuff, which is crazy popular at the moment, and not just ancient alien stuff, but like, the, you know, the Graham Hancock stuff and all that. Um, sooner or later, you're going to get into the weeds. You're going to get into the details that you don't necessarily know, and you're going to have to take someone else's word for it, right? I'm not a geologist. I'm not a historian. I'm not, a, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not many things, and I'm going to have to take someone else's word for these details at some point or other. And if that's when the conspiracy theorist has you, because they can say, ha, you are taking received wisdom on board. And this, to me, cuts to the, the heart of the death of expertise dilemma, isn't it? Is, well, ultimately, we have to rely on someone else at some point, and we have to be comfortable with that. So who do you, who do you trust? And do you remember the woman saying on Beyond the Curve, or Behind the Curve, the, the interviewer asked her, well, who do you trust? If everybody else is corrupt because they're all part of the system, and who do you trust? And she said, well, I guess just me, which is a kind of a scary world to live in where you can't take anything beyond what you see for real. Is, is that what's called solipsism? Is that what that is? Yeah, that was, it was an ancient Greek philosophical sect called the solipsists. And they basically believed that, you know, when they looked at their own hand, they could be reasonably comfortable that that was, in fact, their hand. But anything beyond that, you know. I also think that's why there's such a culture amongst conspiracy or, you know, fringe thinkers of like, Go out and do it yourself, which is, on the face of it, is admirable. But they don't, they don't necessarily have the skills or the training to interpret what they're finding. So people like to say, well, I, I've done all my own research by looking. You know, you know in, the video, in, the, in the movie when they're, the woman is talking about, you know, flight trails and stuff of yeah. airplanes avoiding the North Pole or something. And it's the same when I talk to people who say, well, I've looked at Google Earth for, for, you know, for hours and I see all these patterns and, and structures and buildings and you can't explain that. And it's like... I admire that you're going out and doing what you think is primary research, but you don't have the tools to interpret it. And and yeah. I, on the other hand, they, they think I'm at fault because I'm ultimately relying on someone else's authority. I would rather read a scientific paper about this and see what the consensus is. But then yeah. that, to them, that makes me more susceptible to, you know, being lied to by whoever the powers that be are. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think that it's actually very rare for genuine autodidacts to come about. <laughs> and, that, you know, the, the likelihood of someone being able to, you know, comprehend the, the evidence before their eyes in a, in a sort of a critically engaged and, 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 and sort of um, credible manner. is just like, it's, I, I don't fancy the chances of it happening, you know, and you know, like there's, a, there's in Goodwill Hunting, there's a, there's a bit where, uh, Matt Damon, who's playing Goodwill Hunting, like has an argument about American history with, you know, with this kind of like typical Harvard tough type type character, and Matt Damon sort of like punks him out with his amazing knowledge of the American <laughs> Revolution and sort of says to him, you know, like what you paid a hundred grand for, like I got in the public library, but you know, I always say, it it the, the knowledge is which books to pull off the shelf, and someone had to write those books too, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the thing is, how did he like? How did he know which books? were worth their salt and which ones weren't because the average person walks into a library yes maybe the same stuff that you would get in a harvard history class on the american revolution is available in the public library but the key is that you're entrusting someone who knows what they're talking about to get to select the right books for you to read in the right order so that you can ask the right questions you know then the likelihood that someone would actually be able to understand and come up with good good sort of means of investigating 
these phenomena it's just it's very very low quite frankly and like so like there's a degree to which like established education exists so that people can have accreditations to get jobs and stuff but beyond that but beyond that it's also you know um a means to, to to verify the credibility of the kind of information that we're passing on you know like and and the cynical way is like oh you only got like and this is one of the problems with like let's say lack of civic values being communicated through the educational system now is that like you know why study english or history when you're not going to get a job out of it you know like education is not purely utilitarian like what's the functionality of this it goes actually or at least in a functioning democracy i would say it goes beyond that you know like it's that it, it's it's important like the, the the method is 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 important and all the rest of it you know in 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 that in that regard great well just for time reasons i think i'll wrap it up is there any are there any final um kind of take-home messages you'd like to put out there before we do so um yeah i think that being a member of the establishment doesn't mean you're right but it means that you're more likely to be right and that there's a means for you to be uh demonstrated to be wrong in a forum where the rules of the game are established and agreed upon by the participants online it's a wild west where um sort of rambunctious and often rude and sardonic and ir uh, ironic behavior gets rewarded rather than you know kind of truth telling and i think that the number one uh distinction that we have to be constantly aware of is that information and knowledge are not the same thing and that the democratic space of the internet is full of information but not all that information is knowledge and that ideally speaking established forms of education uh are sort of put in place to filter information from knowledge and that doesn't mean that we're always successful in in, in trying to do so but again the system has in its very structures uh, a self-pleasing mechanism to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff and to, you know, for want of a better term, kind of punish or demote those who are pushing uh, information rather than knowledge more often than not. Fantastic. Finally, do you have any creative projects that got on the go at the moment that you would like to direct people towards? It could, could be written, could be academic, could be musical. Um, I don't know exactly when this is going to come out, so I'm maybe not so specific as a particular gig on a particular date, but if there's a website or any uh, YouTube pages or anything like that you'd like to uh, send people towards? Uh, all I can do, I suppose, is recommend uh, people check out some of my uh, ongoing musical projects. Um, my own band is called Gilbillies. We play a combination of uh, bluegrass, um, country and rockabilly. Um, I play guitar and mandolin in that band. I also play rhythm guitar in a spaghetti western band called Bronco Loco. And you can check out both of them on Known uh, Data Violator Facebook. <laughs> Thanks, Donald. I put that stuff on the on the show notes as well. Thanks for talking to us today. All right, have a good one. Rock and roll. Bye. This has been, well, another rather serious episode of White Atlantic Weird. Sometimes, you know, we just have to look behind the blurry photos of UFOs and guys in bad Bigfoot suits and see exactly which dark undercurrents those fragments truly float on. After all, that's what White Atlantic Weird is really about. And remember, the only difference between fact and fiction 
is that fiction has to make sense. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review wherever you listen, and chat to us on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland. So, from the bunker, somewhere in the borderlands, thanks for listening.